I think when I first started the business, I was quite nervous that it could be perceived, that Hiver could be perceived as being quite gimmicky. What was it being a different beer style, it having honey in it, and it being started by a woman? I was really sensitive to the fact that consumers or trade might think it was, you know, a beer for women by a woman. Mm. And so it was, you know, that was talking to the to the people that designed the the logo and the label at that time. I was just constantly saying, like, don't want illustrative bees, like, on there. It needs to be neutral. Mm. This has got to appeal to both men and women. And it needs to be grown up. Welcome to our podcast series, Talk Straight, Think Smart with Howard Kennedy. I'm Lydia Christie, a legal director at the firm and your host for this series. My guest today is Hannah Rhodes, the founder of Hiver, who turns honey into beer. Yes, I know what you might be thinking, a podcast by a law firm, how dull. But this podcast isn't about us. It's about the much more interesting people we're interviewing. In this episode, we hear the journey of Hannah Rhodes, who is not only my netball teammate, but the founder of Hiver Beer. A pivotal moment for Hannah was when she ended up being on top of Tate Britain for her first beekeeping experience. She instantly fell in love with the world of bees and an idea formed to bring that together with her other passion, beer. Luckily, after a few tries at least, it turned out to be a perfect recipe. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for taking part in our podcast series. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Very welcome. And um, even better because I see you have not come empty-handed. So before we start, um, I'm holding in my hand Hiver blonde beer can and I think yeah. we need to give it a give it a go cheers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cheers <laughs> can't chat about beer and, uh, and not have one exactly well that is what we're here to talk about today we are here to talk about Hiver and how you turn honey into beer um but before we go into that I know you and I've known you for a long time um we play netball together. We do. We're going to try not to talk too much about netball today, <laughs> um, even though there's a really important game on tonight. Um, but for our listeners, could I ask you to give a brief intro to who you are? Sure. So my name's Hannah, Hannah Rhodes. I am the founder of Hiver Beers. And yeah, delighted to be with you for this podcast today. Thank you. Um, so I thought what we could start with at the beginning was just to... Um, talk a bit more about you um, and particularly what, what you were like growing up and as a child and, um, yeah, what, where, where, where you're from. So I'm from Hull in uh, North East England, so in East Yorkshire. And um, it was funny because I actually gave my mum and dad a bell before coming here to say, did I have any entrepreneurial traits as a kid? And Because um, I think my instant reaction was um, actually... No, like I, I was quite quietly spoken, not necessarily um, somebody that wanted to shout to be heard or anything like that, uh, but was, you know, I, I didn't struggle at school. I had some great friends. I, I was lucky to have a good experience at school. Um, Hull is a very, very working class city. Uh, it was then and it sort of still is now. Um, and I think little things like getting the school bus from my mum and dad's in East Hull to St Mary's, which was a Catholic school in the other side of the city, 
it was an amazing experience actually and there were lots of things uh, about that time that obviously shaped me as it does for many people so the school bus went through all parts of uh, the city like some of the biggest council estates in Europe uh, are in Hull so there was anyone and everyone on this bus and it was just uh, an hour kind of picking through the back streets on this yeah I mean half the time it kind of broke down and we were late um, but it was an amazing journey and then you know you'd get there and we were you know very lucky to have this fantastic quality education because it was funded by the church rather than necessarily the local authority mm-hmm. so I did feel that that gave me a really uh, you know an important kind of leg up for somebody from a city that mm. um, you know that's not always the case for people from Hull so I felt very lucky to go to St Mary's. It was a great, uh, great education there. I made some amazing friends, some of which, um, you know, are now in London and I'm playing netball with. Uh, that I think you, that you also know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, St Mary's was a really important part of my education. And uh, and I think, as I was saying, I come back to my mum and dad, I gave them a bell to say, oh, what about these entrepreneurial traits, you know? And uh and my mum kind of said, oh, well, you, you always you were always very inquisitive. You always had lots of questions and you always wanted to know why something was done the way it was and why couldn't it be done better and could it be done more efficiently? So I think that was, I wouldn't have got there with that without their help, I don't mm. think. Did you, were you around people who had set up their own businesses or? No, not at all. So yeah, no, nobody in the family had owned or started a business and um, yeah, I think it wasn't until probably a couple of years into Hiver that I started to realise maybe other business owners, especially in drinks that I was meeting, normally they came from a family that perhaps were business owners or had contacts and a network that could perhaps help them. And so that was something that, yeah, certainly when I started the business, it started to become obvious that I really needed to build that network for myself and, and work mm. on it and develop it. Mm. I think going back to like my upbringing, one of the things um, that I would say actually about my mum and dad was that they really brought me up with this idea that you know anybody can do anything that they want and so I never felt any limitations in terms of you know whether I wanted to be cleaning the streets or a taxi driver or an astronaut there was no there was nothing that I felt was sort of out of my reach Mm. and I think for you know from like humble backgrounds that was um, a really precious thing that they Mm. kind of gave to me and my sister actually. Mm. And what about interest in sustainability which we'll talk about a bit more later but that's like a a real theme as well in your business yeah I don't really know where that interest came from to be honest I think partly um the introduction to the food and drink scene in London when I moved down here so I went traveling after uni and just sort of moved down to sort of make a go of it and see the big city lights really Mm. had the idea of joining a couple of graduate schemes and um yeah I think I, I I just fell in love with street food markets and being able to talk to producers and that real connection and link that you start to get when you understand produce and where Mm. it comes from and the people behind it. And then often their personal stories are ones of passion and that really connects you to a product or a brand. Mm. So I I think, you know, I, with my first job, which was at a brewery, first proper job in London. um, So I never ended up going down the graduate scheme route, like (laughs) applied for it. It was coming around the corner and uh, sort of fell into a job at a brewery and never looked back. All of a sudden, there was this lovely opportunity to get creative with beer, get hands-on with the raw ingredient, which is cereal and hops. And uh, and actually, this I just found that there was all this amazing taste and flavour in beer and this idea that there's a beer style out there for everybody and, uh, and perhaps a beer for every mood. I think these days, you know, we, you definitely say there's a drink for every mood. It's not just about beer and mm. beer is alcoholic and non-alcoholic. But, um, yeah, I, I think 
the introduction to taste, flavor, aroma, the creativity that comes with recipe development, that link to produce. I think the interest in sustainability stemmed from that. It was just like the next stage, once you get to kind of the kernel and the root of something, Mm. um, actually then how it's grown. And and then for me, it was, yeah, the more natural, the better. Mm. And just the horror sometimes when you kind of find out something that you've enjoyed eating or drinking is really heavily processed and um and not natural at all yeah I I didn't like that idea at all so it wasn't just doing loads of boozing at uni that basically Uh, got you (laughs) I think that probably helped for it (laughs) well that probably leads us nicely into talking about how you started your business So you then started getting into, you talked about getting into kind of food and drink businesses and industries. Can you tell me about your kind of your first job then in, in, in the, in the industry? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'd always worked in pubs and restaurants when I was a, you know, a teenager and then at uni to kind of help, you know, pay the way and everything. Um, so I wasn't a vet, you know, I wasn't like I was new to hospitality, but certainly, I was new to the other side of hospitality, which I guess is supply. So um, I yeah, ended up working for Meantime Brewery after going to a tasting event. And at that time, they were very small. They were doing something really exciting, something really different. I think for some listeners that know craft beer and maybe a craft beer connoisseurs, they might well think that Meantime is quite mainstream and boring now because of everything that's happened since. Um, I'd challenge that, but I, I would say back then they really were doing something very different. And um, the vision of the the founder of that business, a guy called Alistair Hook, was infectious. You know, he wanted to see good quality beer on every bar up and down the country. And it's so funny to think that even like 10, 15 years ago, actually a pub, uh, a pub offering was maybe seven or eight different international lagers, most of which were very, very difficult to pick um, one from the other in terms of flavor, mm. Guinness and a few hand pumps. And that was your lot. Mm. And now you go into most venues and actually you might have a variety of four or five beer styles. There'll be independent producers, medium-sized regional Mm. brewers. You might even be in a place that's got wine and uh, cocktails on draft. It's Mm. a totally different scene. And so I think that early stage of that craft beer movement was so exciting in the UK. Uh, and, And, you know, like I definitely feel grateful for it because I was very fortunate to be involved at the forefront of it. At the meantime, they were a small business. There were 13 of us top to bottom from founder to finance mm. to um, to brewer and packaging line. And, you know, it was as much about how you do business as how not to do it as well. I learned, I learned a lot of uh, skills there. And I also learned a lot of things I didn't want to necessarily put into my own business. There was a lot of firefighting. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a lot of gaps in our processes and systems a lot of people that were really passionate but not necessarily very experienced Mm. and uh you know things that are not you know nothing awful or critical but just things that made business hard yeah and that difference between being really super proud of the quality and the taste of your product um being brand-led being aware of your consumer being able to be forward-facing as a business Mm. and reach out look to acquire new customers and trade or always facing inward Mm. constantly battling with maintenance problems investing in new tanks and Mm um and and yeah like lots of gaps in knowledge am I right in saying as well that that's where you um I'm gonna say made your own I say made your own beer conceived an idea for a lager um there and if that's right I, I'm trying to imagine were you 
you were actually making it. That's what I want to know. (laughs) There was a brilliant team. So I think um, in that, what's infectious about a small business and the thing that absolutely got me hooked on small business, I think, is when you work hard and you have an idea, um, you can, one, run with it. uh, You can make it happen. I love that um, feeling and that sensation that comes with converting an idea into reality and especially creating a product um, and something that, you know, hopefully people love and are proud of. so in a small business, one of the real advantages is, you know, when you're multitasking and you're doing a little bit of everything, a bit of a jack of all trades. One of the exciting things about that role was being in trade with our customers, recognizing that actually there was real demand for lager and for good quality lager. So as much as I think, you know, back then there were lots of breweries doing great ales, people were starting to get a little bit of variety on keg, but only just. And um, I sort of recognized from our customer base that actually it was cocktail bars that were free of tie, so they weren't under contract. It was the packaged lager that was perhaps doing between 10 and 20 case volumes every week. So actually, if we could um, if we if we could tap into that and produce a lager of our own that had, you know, that was British and um it wasn't just a British brewery doing a, a version of a German lager and calling it a Hellas. Mm. Uh, but actually if we did our own, something that we were proud of, then um hopefully you know that that opportunity was ours it was the right end of the market to kind of pay for something that was quality and that really worked so it um they let me run with that idea um that was my first real practice run at getting something off the ground um from like concept through to mm. uh liquid so I worked with the brewing team I knew what liquid I wanted I, I kind of knew the the flavor profile that I had in my mind um and so kind of yeah worked on the recipe with the brewing team but yeah they they absolutely brewed it I just sort of interfered and like made them do it a few times it was quite annoying I think um so that was a real you know that was an amazing practice room I want to talk about bees obviously because you know bees and beer I'm gonna get my words mixed up at some point (laughs) in this in this chat but I really want to know how that idea came to you and like what the first step was when did when did the like, idea crystallise when you thought, actually, I'm going to do this now for myself? So fast forward a few years later mm-hmm. and um, the idea for Hiver comes around after getting hands-on, after getting hands-on urban beekeeping, um, actually with a, a local business in Bermondsey, so the London Honey Company, and something bizarre had happened there. They'd, I'd gone along to a, an experience. Uh, I'd sort of said to the guy, like, oh, I'd really want to kind of try uh, try beekeeping, and this is amazing. It's a honey tasting, but right. how do I get hands-on? Like, love getting hands-on with stuff. And he said, oh, well, let me, take, let me take your number, and if, you know, it's a bit too cold, it's January, so it's too cold at the minute, but, you know, if something crops up, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bell in the spring or something if we're, if we're doing an open day. Uh, anyway, two weeks later, the phone goes, and this is a guy called Steve Benbow, and he's like, listen, I know it's really random, but my helper's called in sick. Could you help me? I need to open up some hives that we manage. And, um, wow. you know, I, I, I need a hand and literally just need you to stand there holding some stuff. And that'd be it. Meet me at Pimlico Tube. So I met him at Pimlico Tube Station. And at this point, I'm thinking, actually, this is really weird because this is a guy that I don't know from Adam. I'm just meeting him, <laughs> Pimlico. I, you know, I probably need to tell somebody what I'm doing. Um, and anyway, we we sort of went for a walk and we ended up in the house that he managed were on the roof of the Tate Britain. So all of a sudden, wow. I was on the roof of the Tate Britain looking out over London with um, like a beekeeping beekeep, suit beekeep on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just holding the tools and the bits and pieces. This that could be a good needed. first date, I'm thinking, just as yeah. a general Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first experience of beekeeping and I think from that moment I was absolutely hooked like 
this amazing bird's eye view of the city, super holistic. You know, you see the trees, you can see the traffic, you see the people, the skyline. And you've got this real Zen thing going on with, you know, thousands of bees that are totally not bothered about you. They're just doing their own thing, foraging. And the more you learn about bees, the, the more you want to know. They're fascinating little creatures. So at that point, I was thinking, wow, this is what an incredible, you know, bees and beekeepers are part of this food cycle. They pollinate over 30% of the food that we eat. This amazing connection with the natural world and through this amazing product called Honey, which most of us think of honey as being like this squeezy jar of something in our granny's cupboard. But actually, when you talk to an independent beekeeper about varietals of honey and the link to the nectar source, bees forage in a three-mile radius to the hive. So urban London honey is really citrusy, and that's because they're kind of gathering nectar from the lime and acacia trees that we all see every day in all the trees that the Victorians planted around us. So between April and July, massive nectar flow from those trees. That gives London honey a really citrusy vibe. So all of a sudden you've got taste and flavor through honey. It's a natural sugar. I started reading up about honey mm. beer as a style. So I knew all about mead, was thinking, well, you know, there's got to be something there in, in beer. But despite all this amazing experience, at meantime, that's not a beer style that we ever brewed. It's not one of the beers that I ever tried from all the other mm. breweries that we used to taste from. Is there something there? And actually there was an amazing tradition and history of brewing honey beer in the UK and other parts of Europe. Mm. So that was kind of how the idea came along. And then going from that idea to the first step of, I'm actually now going to do this. I think you said concept to liquid with the, with the previous example. <laughs> how do you get from your beekeeping outfit on the top of the Tate Britain to um, what's the first step to saying, well, I'm now going to turn this into a business, my business? Well, I guess I... I it seemed like a really big leap and I was really, I think I was chomping at the bit to have something of my own by this time, like that small business. I was totally hooked on small business and, and that um, reward that you get with, you know, being able to see your hard work, like I mentioned earlier. And, you know, I, I basically approached a friend of mine that I'd worked with at the meantime who had a, a small brewery in Brixton and said, look, if you've got any down days, I would just love to have a go at brewing a honey beer, but in a really authentic way. Mm. So not a beer with honey added for sweetening at the end or sugar and flavoring or anything like that. One where the honey is fermented into alcohol content alongside the barley and the hops. And the more I read, the more I realized that nobody else was really brewing honey beers in that way. They were, they were flavored and they were maybe at the cheaper end of the beer spectrum, but not necessarily you know, not, not using honey as a natural sugar for, uh, for, for fermentation purposes. So at first it was just a bit of an idea in the back of my mind, but was just curious to see what a proper honey beer would taste like. And it was fun. You know, I think I was at a time in my job then. I was then working for a fruit juice company. And while I loved it and was learning a lot of discipline from my then boss, um, Steve Carter, it was fantastic. Hadn't had any of that in, in the brewery. So it was, it was really a nice transition. You know, I was I, I was missing that passion and I think I'd become very passionate about beer, that link to the cereal and the hop and the creative side of it. I, I was really missing that and missing working with beer in, in that, that side of the industry. So, um, yeah, what started as a fun few trial brews, you know, it, it didn't taste great or smell great at first <laughs> and then two or three trial brews in, it did. And I was just doing it on a weekend and it, it was fun. It was a bit of a hobby. Uh, but by the time I started tasting with some some people I knew, some buyers, some some pubs, some bar owners, like the guys at the Hyde Bar on Bermondsey Street, 
know, I'd be popping in there every couple of weeks with some more samples saying, oh, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And yeah. do you think it'd have legs? And then started tasting with a few friends, with a few consumers, started to get them talking about honey and bees to try and understand, you know, is it something that could make them tick? I was very, very conscious that, you know, the beer scene, while craft beer was really on the rise, was very much about pale ales and IPAs or still mass market lagers. And actually, while, you know, while we all talk a good talk, there's not much consumption of beer styles in the middle. So uh, it still felt very, very different. And I was very conscious that it would be, it would be like starting a category from scratch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot of education that would be needed. Um, was that the was that the kind of feedback you were getting from the people that you were kind of giving your samples to? No, they were loving it and they were all really excited. And even like, you know, a few years ago, they were sort of saying like, oh, bees, we love bees. Like they're the cooler hipster version of wasps. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we need to do stuff for them. Like, the, you know, they're really in trouble. Like we need to, we all need to do our bit. But then you talk to them about honey and and they would say, it's medicinal. It's it's something that I see in my grandma's cupboard. Yeah. So straight away, you could tell that people loved the flavor and they were very excited by um, a new beer style. They liked something that wasn't hoppy rather than something that was sweet. Mm. So I definitely would say, you know, people would say, oh, is it sweet? That's the nervousness for trying Hiver for the first time, which, mm. you know, I understand where that comes from. It's not. It's fermented. It's crisp. It's yeah. dry. Um. So once they tried it, it was interesting. They just really went down a rabbit hole of food matching and talking about bees and wanting to know more. So it just automatically seemed like this lovely connection with uh, with, with the bees and, yeah. and this end product, but not necessarily about honey. And so that that has, that has been a theme. You know, I soon realized that this could be a great way to tell the story so, of bees yeah. and beekeepers, um, to have a business of my own that gave back and yeah. that was based on a really sustainable foundation. Um, but also was a, a liquid that I could be super proud of. And before we kind of come to present day, I, and just so uh, people listening know, where is where is your base now? What What is Hiver today as a business? Sure. So I guess, um, so when I started, it was me and my sister. So she was at uni and she came and stayed with me for a weekend to help me deliver to the first 10 customers. So I hired us at Van and I went out and delivered 10 cases of beer and then went and sat and drank half of them, I think, in one of the pubs, uh, which actually was the draft house on Telbridge Road. Um, so on a, on a Sunday, I had a stall at Maltby Street Market and would sell uh, the beer to, to consumers and actually picked up a few local pubs and restaurants, mm. stockists in that way. And so, yeah, fast track eight years forward. So we're now available nationwide in Waitrose, uh, Sainsbury's, Ocado. Your voice Amazon. is getting quieter and quieter. I feel like it should be getting louder at this point. This is, and your, 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 I was going to say headquarters, but I think you call them your hive quarters. Uh, hive quarters. Uh, yeah. In Bermondsey. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So we've yeah. got one of the railway arches. So Mulberry Street, absolutely, you know, that food and drink community uh, just off Telbridge Road really feels like home. And it was such an amazing place to get a business, like, uh, you know, a drinks business started. Jensen's Gin Distillery let me, you know, use some spare space in their in their distillery while I was getting started I had a bit of drinks industry experience they didn't we kind of shared tips with one another and and I guess yeah a few couple of years later took the railway arch on next door so that's now the tap room and our office and then 2020 oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) time for a drink So 2020, 
Um, hit. Ugh. I think that's a good sound for 2020. <laughs> <laughs> um, when did you realise, you know, obviously we're all hearing that story kind of from January 2020 mm. and going, oh, Jay, have you heard what's going on over there? And then when did you realise that this is actually now going to hit us and what, you know, what it meant for you and for, for Hiver? Yeah, well, from a personal point of view, actually, I was travelling around southwest China in the January of 2020. <laughs> so I got home to a letter from the NHS saying, like, oh, you're, you're one of the people we've been trying to find. Oh, um, right. Like we, we needed to kind of isolate. Now, the timing of that was all amiss. Like, it was actually, a, I got it a couple of weeks after I'd got back. But at that point, you're thinking, oh, there's something a bit different about this. This is um, mm. this is unusual. It felt a little bit strange. But I think the point where... Um, I'd gone with some friends. So one of the great things about Hull is it's a P&I ferry base, which I don't think many people realise. <laughs> and there's this amazing weekend away, which we fondly call the booze cruise, which is super cheap. <laughs> uh, so me and some old school friends had done that the weekend before. Uh, it was, you know, we went Friday, Saturday, Sunday, hopped on a ferry, did a massive pub crawl over in, um, in Bruges, went back to Hull, all a bit hungover. And actually on the Monday... Uh, the pubs and restaurants closed in in Belgium and I just could not believe that because you know beer and socializing over a drink and food is such a critical part of their culture mm. you know they live and breathe beer and whenever you do a tasting you, you can't help but bring Belgian beer styles into it mm. and at that point I was like oh wow this is really serious like this is coming here there's no two words mm. about it and I think even then like early March we were thinking that it was never gonna arrive in the UK right so it did arrive. Lockdown definitely hit, didn't it? And um, yeah, within, I mean, almost immediately, it was it was not far off catastrophic for the business. So we'd been working really hard at the back end of 2019 to, to like gear into 2020. And uh, we had stock, yeah, we'd been brewing hard uh, stock on hand for a British Airways listing that was a seasonal summer listing. We had national cinema groups that we'd, uh, you know, we were, we were contracting with. It was so exciting. It felt like 2020 was our year. And we we built all this stock up ready to supply for what was going to be a bumper summer. And uh, and yeah, all of a sudden, everything's shut. These contracts aren't worth the paper that they're written on. And within a few days, the revenue was down to about 12%. So normally, you know, in business, you're looking at least six months out, three months, six months out. You've got your forecast for three years ahead mindful of cash reserves, all that kind of stuff as a growing business, obviously, especially important because that line is quite hard to tread. And uh, all of a sudden your vision is reduced to a fortnight. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, like, we're in real, I'm in real trouble here. I, I don't know how I'm going to keep this going. So, you know, I've got a few shareholders, you, you're in touch with them, but it, you didn't know. Mm. We just sort of tried to limit cost as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, was in touch with our suppliers and actually the relationships that I think myself and my colleagues have built up with our suppliers, including, you know, the brewery partner and all that kind of stuff really came into its own because everyone was united. It was affecting everybody, mm. not just um, as consumers, but the industry especially. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, it was it was tough. But all of a sudden, you know, um, fair lows announced, so absolutely made the most of that. And Hive is quite an unusual business for um, for a beer brand because there's like five different channels. So we've obviously got the normal core beer sales to pubs, bars and restaurants, now to supermarkets, which was amazing. Fantastic to be able to lean on that as lockdown hit. 
they are listings that are in their infancy though. So it's not like we're selling pallets and pallets mm. and pallets to them every month. They need funding and money to kind of grow and drive. It's, yeah. uh, you know, they're not profitable channels until you're much, much bigger. But the tap room was closed. Thankfully, the tap room team could go on to furlough. The experiences where we do beekeeping and beer tastings for people. Normally, we host in excess of like three to four thousand people every season. Uh, down at the down at the house, right. you know, that team was also furloughed. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it was just whittled down to myself, Matt, the operations manager, and the finance director. And thankfully, you know, didn't have to make any redundancies because we were able to lean on that government support being a hospitality business. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was frightening. And all of a sudden your vision is two weeks ahead. And, and that was basically the story for the next two years. So it was really only in September last year that things started to improve. As despite the openings, just it, it was a very transient time still for, yeah. for the industry. To, to manage with something like that, did you... like? I think, you know, everyone's had to kind of react and respond really quickly and be really agile and flexible. Do, do you feel like you had, a, not, I don't think anyone had a plan in place for this, but do you think you had um, things in place that you could then immediately go to that could, you know, that applied in this situation that meant that you could adapt quickly or, or you know? I, I think the nature of you know, not being not too far out of the blocks as a startup and um, the fact that you have to just think quickly on your feet a lot in a small business. So, um, you know, like there'd definitely been cash wobbles prior to 2020. And so I, I think, I think naturally I have a bit of grit in my DNA. So that sense of like just having to dig down, make some quick decisions gathering the team around you and going right we're all in this together like how do we move this forward and and let's do it quickly this, mm. this is absolutely the key priority so let's just focus on that you're lean enough and nimble enough as a small business to be able to make very quick changes mm. um and obviously you know sole director I started the business on my own I do have an advisory board around me to help um but I can make things happen quite quickly if I need to um and I, I don't mean that in a hire and fire kind of way but you know we yeah. as I say that fellow support was was a real um it was just absolutely critical like we, we, yeah. I just wouldn't have been able to keep those people uh, employed otherwise so yeah we're well positioned to be nimble I mean that's frightening though you know you're looking forward and thinking oh, there's not enough money to pay for the bills for the stock that we've already produced like you know we were sat on the best part of 70,000 pounds worth mm. of um, stock that hadn't been paid for yet mm. and thinking well I definitely don't have that cash free I don't have the money for salaries and yeah. you know the, the, this I don't think I can keep this going like so yeah I, I kind of it's just it's just a really frightening picture yeah <laughs> I think if you stop and think of it that way you probably just freeze and you know but it, it sounds like as you said you've got this kind of grit that means that you can kind of just adapt quickly deal with it and um you know react basically get on with it is I mean that's kind of what people have had to do, isn't it? In exactly. the last kind of yeah. 20, 20 months or so. Everybody has one way or another. And in, in you, you talked about having kind of an advisory board and you being the kind of, you're the, you, as I said, this is your business, you're the sole, um, um, you're the founder of, of the business. Um, you're also female um, in this business. And I was just interested to know of your experience, um, not, not in the pandemic, and nothing to do with the pandemic as such, but just generally being a woman in this industry and 
you know, how, how has that been as an additional kind of um, uh, side to, to setting all this up? I think when I first started the business, I was quite nervous that it could be perceived, that Hiver could be perceived as being quite gimmicky. What was it being a different beer style, it having honey in it, and it being started by a woman? I was really sensitive to the fact that consumers or trade might think it was, you know, a beer for women by a woman. Mm. And so it was, you know, that was talking to the to the people that designed the the logo and the label at that time. I was just constantly saying, like, don't want illustrative bees like on there. It needs to be neutral. Mm. This has got to appeal to both men and women. And it needs to be grown up. It's not, let's not go down that cute illustrative bee route. Mm. So I was very sensitive to it, but probably for commercial reasons and, and perception reasons. My experiences in the industry have always been very, very positive. I mean, bar one or two, you know, mm. like silly things where, you know, much, much older men in the industry, maybe from traditional brewing backgrounds of, you know, you sat in a room of people and somebody says, oh, do you mind making me a cup of tea? Things like that where you're like, oh, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of guys that have got similar stories yeah. that, you know, whatever, not, not a big deal all a long time ago um, and a much older generation. Mm. Um, but... I would say in many ways it's been an advantage because I'm so different to, you know, 99% of the rest of the industry. That is changing a lot. Um, it's nice to see more women in beer outside of, say, marketing roles as well. So a few more founders, a few more brewers coming through. Um, but it helped make me memorable, I think, in what is otherwise also kind of quite a, a crowded space now. There are so many startups. You do, at time, you know, I, I, I am conscious that, Everybody has a, a different way of getting their opinion across. So as somebody that's quite quietly spoken and not going to sort of, you know, be really demanding of another individual in the room, um, that needs to be balanced out by somebody else that is more commercially driven mm. and uh, and will kind of hammer home the point if, if we're mm. not, if we don't feel that we're getting heard properly. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of mindful of what other personalities I need around me in the mm. business, um, both at advisory board level and uh, team mm. level to make sure that kind of balances my personality out as well. Mm. What, what, what advice would you give to little Hannah on the school bus? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, as she's strolling through the village, going to school, <laughs> possibly thinking about what she might do. Um, it's quite a bucolic image of Hull, actually. I think it's a bit more, uh, a <laughs> little bit more gritty than that. <laughs> um, or rather, really, your your kind of early early Hannah setting up in business. What advice would you from kind of lessons that you've learned? Good question. Um, I think when I was younger, I was yeah maybe a bit more nervous and and would get quite nervous of new things, and I, I think. I think one of the really important things I've learned, and it, it's just one foot in front of the other. Mm. Everybody can make something happen. Everybody's capable of change. It's It just starts with one thing. So I think people, you know, if I, if I think of some of the people that approach me to say, wow, you know, I, uh, this is an incredible story. Can, can you give me some tips? I'd like to start something of my own. And they have grand plans of where they want it to be in 10 years' time as a national brand. It just starts with the little things. And that, that little thing might just be, the trial brew or the sketching out of a name or mm. selling that first bottle of beer to somebody in an outlet until you've kind of sold something you, you, you yeah. don't know if it's going anywhere or not yeah. you've got to ask the fearless questions and and say do you like it do you not like it in the consumer groups that I mentioned when people were saying you know they um bees are a cooler hipster version of wasps 
they didn't know that I was the person behind the brand. So I'd put like a little poster up in the pub and said like, you know, like rounds of drinks for anybody that wants to get involved in this tasting. And I presented myself as um, somebody from a, a bigger brewing business so that they they felt that they could be really open and honest because obviously what you don't want is people telling you what they think that you, you want, want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you need to make sure that you're getting the honest truth out of people yeah. as well to make it successful and I don't know that, uh, you know, that a 12 year old's necessarily going to pick that up, but um, I think I'd maybe just say that thing that mum and dad said to me, really, like you can do anything that you want to do. Go for it. I think that's such a nice, it's just a, nice, a good bit of advice as well. Yeah. Um, and before we kind of close off this section in brief, what are kind of Hiver's kind of plans for the future? Well, I mean, I, I definitely laboured how grim the start of lockdown was, but there were many positive things that came out of it, including, um, you know, within two or three months, the revenues had got back up to about 35, 40%. And that was because consumers, friends, family, people had been to school with, all sorts yeah. kind of came out of the woodwork and started buying cases of beer online. So that was very humbling. And was, I think, you know, you get kind of caught up in the journey a bit as well. You know, you it's exciting pitching to supermarkets and getting those listings and you, you're focusing on trying to get your rate of sale up and, you know, like talking to agencies about campaigns. And actually the best thing that's happened to the business in the last few years is that reminder of the connection with the end consumer going back to basics. And we did a, we did a survey to our newsletter database at the end of last year. And now we're working on some new product development for a honey cider. Mm. So first time ever looking at go, like going outside of beer and, but it's a real natural progression for us to be able to use honey as a natural sweetener in cider, which normally has loads of sugar in it. And that came from having built this database, um, you know, making tweaks, which we could do ourselves on the website over the, you know, the, uh, since the lockdown hit and growing that loyalist group, working with them, asking them um, what they wanted to see from us, what could be better about the process, making changes to our delivery charges, the turnaround times, so all of us, it really just felt like it was back to basics, but eyes on e-commerce properly for the first time. Right. And and so more of that, hopefully, yeah. more of that. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it's definitely early stages for e-commerce for Hiver, but it also really highlighted the giftability of the brand. And that's been a real win for us at times when other channels like pubs, bars and restaurants are still suffering and yeah. and are still closed to us in many respects. So that, that side of the business is completely decimated. Mm. Um, what's been amazing is actually gifting at Christmas through Amazon, which was something that we never, ever would have thought to do uh, pre-lockdown, mm. has been fantastic. It's yeah. thin margin, but how amazing that, you know, thousands of people were opening Hiver gift packs on Christmas Day. Like, that is that's pretty exciting. I'm looking over secretly to, uh, to, to Rachel here, who's in the background, who I think <laughs> gifted uh, so, some beer to her dad at Christmas. Oh, <laughs> how nice. How nice. So, Hannah, at the end of every podcast, we finish <laughs> with a quick fire round. Don't be nervous. Don't overthink it. Just so fine, say yeah. whatever comes to <laughs> mind. Um, what's your favorite beer? Hiver. <laughs> there you go. That was a quick one. Um, Zoom meetings, are they here to stay or distant memory for you? Oh, I think they're here to stay. I, I kind of wish Teams was better, but 
but it's not. So still Zoom. <laughs> Would you rather grow your business, sell your business, or start again? Oh God. Uh, it was really hard not to swear, actually, with that. Uh, grow it. Grow it. Okay. Yeah. Um, what would you rather invest in now, people or tech? People. Definitely people, yeah. And uh, I was going to say final question, but I'm sneaking in an extra question at the end. Um, penultimate question. When it comes to decision-making... Are you perfection every time or launch and learn? Launch and learn. Yeah, I think I was perfection every time at the start yeah. and that's, that soon gets beaten out of you. Just go, go, go. And my final off-piece question is big game tonight, England Roses versus Australian Diamonds. What, what's your prediction? I think 65-64 <laughs> England Roses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last minute shot from Helen Houseby again, please. That would be amazing. That was amazing. Or um, Jane Clark as well. That would be fab. Yes. Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you. Really Thanks for having it. me. You too. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it, from an inquisitive child to asking fearless questions as a sole director of her own beer company. This podcast was recorded in January 2022, just as the government called time on Winter Plan B. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening from to find out who our next guest will be. (laughs) 